You're listening to Cooper Talk. Uh, welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. It was around like 25 years ago. I was I moved from New Jersey to San Diego, and I was getting out of stand-up comedy, and I wanted to look into screenwriting. And I remember looking at a magazine. I don't know if it was Esquire or Rolling Stone. But it was about my guest. He had just written uh, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead and Beautiful Girls was coming out. And it was one of those magazines. I got so many magazines back then. And now, all these years later, he's had, he's had a great career, which is something to say because a lot of times writers have a hot streak in Hollywood and they disappear. But he's been working since then. And my guest is Scott Rosenberg. How you doing, Scott? Good. How are you? Good. Yeah, I remember reading that article and it was funny. I went out and I rented Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. And I'm a huge Warren Zevon fan. So that even made it better. But, you know, do you ever look back and say, wow, you know, you've been you've been successful since 95? Yeah, I was uh, I was just saying that to somebody that it was, you know, we really are really, especially writers. We're really no better than professional baseball players or football players. If you think about it, you most most have like a good if, if you're lucky enough, you get a good seven or eight years. Um, and so the fact that I'm going on, you know, getting close to 30 or 25 anyway, um, is, is amazing. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I, I don't want to, like everything else, there are peaks and valleys, you know, I mean, I was, I was really hot coming out, you know, obviously you pay your dues and then you have a little bit of success. And then I was the hot young thing for a while. And then it kind of slows, slows down. And I was just lucky enough to you know, catch another wave kind of last, you know, six, seven years. I mean, I never stopped working, but I, I'd gone a long time without um, having a movie made, which, you know, which was really shocking to me because the first nine years of my career, I think I've made nine movies. Yeah. So must... then, then I, to go like my entire forties without, uh, I don't, I mean, I worked all the time and I rewrote, but I don't have one. And I did some TV shows, but I didn't have one credited, I don't think, I mean, I haven't really, I mean, I, I sound like I paid attention to it, but I haven't paid as much attention, but, but it really is, um, it's definitely a, a point of pride just to be still standing, you know, uh, who knows how much longer it will last, especially in the current climate, because you get old and you get, you know, all kinds of things, but, but we'll see. You know what amazes me? It's like you had just said something. You know, you were still working, but you didn't have anything made. It's like when I talk to actors who have a pilot, and they sit there and they go, "Oh man, I had I've done ten pilots, nothing got picked up." And I'm like, "Yeah, but you still got that work, which is such an accomplishment that when you are working like you are and had that great success early, it's something that I think you take it for granted sometimes that you're still working, and people are like, "Wow, you know, you're still working." Well, also, and this sounds super obnoxious but you 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 actually wind up doing better financially when you're not working because you know you get a movie get made and you know a lot of times with the movies my movies when they got made you know i would go to set and i would be there and i'd be involved in it so it kind of takes you out of the game right so you're not i'm not writing for seven months or six months or whatever the, you know, we're shooting con air and i'm like I'm... so when you when 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 it's when it's seemingly fallow because nothing's getting made, that's when you can write three, four, five movies a year. You know, um, so it's it's this weird kind of paradox. 
Now, what what got you into writing? What, what kind of kid? I know you're from the Boston area, so I'm I'm from the Philadelphia area. So we we grew up we're the same age. We grew up loving sports, and we've both gone through the same time where our football team sucked. Now your football team's been great, and we've gotten good. And a lot of I think for me, a lot of my time before getting in entertainment was I was attracted to sports. Were you a guy who liked sports when you were a kid, or or did you like writing, or was it a mixture of both? Well, I mean, growing up in Boston, you know, we sort of we had to like sports. I mean, that was just, that's just baked into the cake, isn't it? We had some great, you know, again, tremendous Bruins teams in the early seventies. Patriots weren't very good. Red Sox, you know, coming and going and coming and going. And obviously the Celtics were eternal. Um, and so, and my father was a huge sports guy. My brother, I was always into sports, all my buddies, but I was also very much into movies and I was very much into books and I was very much into music uh, I didn't play sports. I wasn't an athlete, which uh, I've always, it's, it's, you know, one of my great, one of my great sorrows that I was never an athlete, but I think it, it served me well because it sort of forced me to spend a lot of time at home with my thoughts, watching television and going to movies and reading novels, which I think suited me later on. Um, but the writing thing was just honestly, and I've said it a million times, it, it, it truly was um, the only thing I was good at. Like I, and I'm, I'm not trying to be, you know, like charmingly self-deprecating. Like I sucked at everything else. I was terrible at math. I was terrible at science. Um, I, I wasn't an athlete, and I, and I had a couple of teachers that really. I mean, going back to like second grade, Mrs. Gordon, who really, who really, so you know, it's it's funny. I can name them. It was a, second grade was Mrs. Gordon, fifth grade Mrs. Crow, sixth grade Mrs. Pratt, seventh grade was Mr. Putnam. These were the these were the teachers that genuinely were like oh that that kid shows is going back to second grade you know um i was the kid who if like you know a teacher was leaving the school or moving away or something i would they would make me write a poem and read it to the assembly you know i was that kid and it was just always something that i was that i was that i kind of was good at came easy to and uh i didn't know that i was going to make a career out of it you know but i was always writing fiction i was always writing short stories um, and then eventually you just, you know, I've always loved movies. And so you sort of, wow, is there, is it possible that I could rock these things together? You know, I mean, I definitely had some vague notion that I was going to be a novelist or something that was sort of the, the top of mind early on. Um, it is funny you mentioned teachers cause I was just talking to someone about this the other day. I had a teacher in high school named Dr. Dwyer. And I still remember he wore a white turtleneck and had glasses like I have and you have now, but back then people weren't wearing glasses like that. Right. And, um, I wrote a paper, uh, How to Give a Wedgie. And he thought it was funny. I ended up going into comedy and just because, you know, but he encouraged me, which I think for you it's important when they see that, they, they tell you something and, you know, you can hear from your friends or you hear from your parents. But we're at the age where when you heard it from a teacher, you respected your teacher. It was a really, Absolutely. it was a real, like, a positive, positive thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that was especially back then, like your parents weren't really encouraging you because they kind of didn't know what to make of it. So, and same with your friends, you know, so it was obviously coming from the teacher, it, it carried so much more weight and like, wow, maybe this is something, maybe this is something that I should keep on doing, you know? So you went to college and then you ended up going to UCLA after you graduated. What, what took you out to the West coast? Well, I went, I went to college. I went to BU. Um, I had a, I was a communications major and I was a creative writing minor. I got into the graduate creative writing program as an undergraduate, which 
which was kind of amazing. It was taught by this guy, Leslie Epstein, whose son wound up being the, um, the GM of, uh, of the, of the Red Sox who you know, reversed the curse, Theo, um, later. But, but back then he was a little kid who came to visit his dad and Leslie was a novelist and his father, I don't want to say his father, his grandfather, like co-wrote his father and his uncle wrote Casablanca. Uh, and he was this, it was just an amazing professor who, again, saw something in me as a 19 year old and let me, got me into this graduate creative writing class where they all hated me all the, you know, cause it was like guys in their forties and fifties, girls and guys in their forties and fifties who wanted to be novelists. And then I was this young punk kid who would like just churn out these like 30 page stories like the night before I was so arrogant. Um, but he really, really was, you know, he was sort of the apotheosis of the encouragement. Like you should do this, not movies, but you should, you should be a, a novelist. And, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do after graduating. And, and I've told this story before too. It's just this girl that I liked was moving to LA. She was moving to LA and I liked her. And I was like, and one of my buddies was like, I think I'm going to LA and you want to come for a little bit. And I was like, Oh, Trish is going to be in LA. Yes. I want to come. So it's true that my career just completely, uh, uh, I have stocking to thank, to thank for my career. Cause I, so I followed her out there. We wound up dating for seven years. So that was a happy ending. But, um, but you know, you're in LA and you're a writer and all of a sudden this, you, you, you come to, you know, everybody you meet is working on a screenplay and this was the eighties. Um, and, uh, and so I just started, I was like, I'm going to try this. I read, I read some scripts. I read, I remember I read The Verdict by Mamet. I read Shane Black's Lethal Weapon. Uh, and there was a third one that I was always read. I can't remember what it was now. And I just said, okay, oh, oh, obviously, Marathon Man. And, um, and, and I just started, I was like, I, I, let, me, let me try this. And so I just started doing it and just writing, writing, writing. And it was that great thing that you have when you're 23 years old that you can just like, by the way, those are the days of the, it was the typewriter. Right. I, I, I used to, I used to use a brother, I used to use the brother word processor that you could see like two lines up top and you'd be writing and you'd be oh, like. Oh, that was it, way, it was, way more advanced than what I had. I had the Smith Corona with the cartridge, the whiteout <laughs> cartridge. And like, you know, a, screenplays are something that you constantly need to be revising. So that was the crazy thing. You'd have to, you'd have to rewrite the entire, you have to start from scratch like if you wanted to change <laughs> you know, a word, because it would change, you know, you couldn't, or, or or have the revision be exactly on that page and not bring it any, you know. Um, and I used to, I mean, we were so poor, I had a, we didn't have a desk, and I used to put the typewriter on my lap, and it was hot, it was electric. So I put a towel in between, my roommates would come home and I'd be sweating, I'd be <laughs> typing and sweating because of the heat that it generated. Um and, th- and that was really how it did. And then, and then I decided after about four years of like doing every shit job and, and, and not feeling in any way special being in Los Angeles and being a screenwriter, saying I wanted to be a screenwriter. I was like, you know what? Maybe I should just apply to school. Like grad- these hotshot graduate schools are out here. Let me, let me try and get in. So I applied to USC first and I got in miraculously. They didn't have a writing program at that time. And I wasn't that interested in making films. So I transferred to UCLA, which was also a lot cheaper because I was now a resident. And while I was at UCLA, they had the Samuel Goldwyn, uh, uh, they, they had this contest for all the, 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 the screenwriting 
I guess all the UC schools had screenwriting departments. And I came in third place. It was called the Samuel Goldwyn Award. I came in third place, and that sort of got me my first agent. And so we did some things. You know, she was she was she was cool enough, but nothing really happened with her. And then my buddy Gary Fleeter, who I was going to be you with, was doing his thesis film. He was at USC, and he asked me to write it. And I wrote it, and it was this thing called Airtime. And it became, in those days, the USC student screenings were a big deal. Like, agents would come, and they would be looking to sign kids. And and I wrote it, and it just, the thing, it became like the hot student film of that year. And we signed with the new agents, and Joel Silver, the producer who did Lethal Weapon and 48 Hours and all those movies, he flipped out, and he loved it, and he said, pitch me something and I'll buy it. Like, I, want to, I want to work with you guys. So we pitched him this idea. He bought it. And the minute, it's just the old cliche is so true. The minute he bought it, the minute one person sort of validated you, then all those other people that I've had these meetings with when I was with the other agent, they all just kind of stepped up. And they were, oh, let's get into business. So I sold the pitch to New Line. And I did an adaptation of a Michael Connelly uh, Bosch novel at Paramount. And then my father got sick with cancer and died. And I wanted to deal with it. I wanted to deal with it and not the traditional sort of movie of the week way. And I just went home one night and I wrote Things to Do in Denver when You're Dead, which was a complete um, metaphor for terminal disease, you know. And then that was exactly, exactly the time where the Quentin thing was just starting to happen. And so I, I mean... It, it was a blessing and a curse. It was a, it was a blessing because everyone was looking for Quentin-style Quentin shit. And it was a curse because a year later, we were just just one other Quentin ripoff. You know, I remember, I remember saying, because we did it at Miramax, and I, remember that, and I got to know him, and I remember before my movie came out, I remember saying to him, I'll give you a dollar for every review of my movie that does not mention your name. And I guarantee you I won't. I will not pay you a penny and it's true like you if you, you could google 300 reviews of things to do in denver and you will not find one that does not mention tarantino's name and then after that i was i was breaking up with that girl that i know this is a super long-winded answer but it's a podcast i was breaking up with that girl of seven years and i sort of wanted to deal with that um and i come from this blue collar town in boston and all my buddies were nearing 30 and having struggling with commitment they were all snowplow guys and I was like, I'm going to, I want to write about this. And, um, and that was Beautiful Girls. And sort of in between then, off of Denver, I, I, I got the chronology a little wrong. Off of Denver, Touchstone brought me in and said, we love your script. We have this idea. It's based on a real thing. You know, the, the Marshal Service flies convicts around the country Um we want it's called Con, Con Air. We'd love you to write it, but the only thing is we don't want it to be Die Hard on a plane. Go figure it out. So it was like the three things: Denver, Con Air, and Beautiful Girls, sort of back to back to back, all kind of very different. Um, is what sort of like made everyone aware at the time, like, oh, there's there's there's, there's, there's a new guy in town. No. Now, now, the thing is, like, all those movies had great casts. I mean, as a writer, that must make you feel great because, you know, you always hear, you know, they can pick, compare it to Tarantino, but it might have, like, some, you know, B guy. But all those movies had great casts. So as a writer, 
did you find that, you know, when you saw them speak your words, were you, was it a big compliment or do you think, well, you know what, there's, they're, they're, they were saying that line wrong because you, you probably envisioned how it all came out. Yeah. I mean, I was really, I was really lucky in that <clears throat> they, you know, they were very, again, they, they, those scripts especially were very, very, um, they had a rhythm to it. There were, there were very, there was a very, the, the actors came, those, they got great cast because there was lots and lots of dialogue. And, you know, I, I remember when I was feeling very, very discouraged early on in my career. And I, I met this junior agent who'd read some of my stuff. This is before I'd had even, a, even a modicum of success. Um, I don't even know if I had an agent then. And he said, don't worry, Scott, you're going to be fine. And I said, so what do you mean? How can you say that? I've been out here for three years and nobody's interested. And he's like, he said, because you write great dialogue and actors drive movies and actors want to say great dialogue. He goes, trust me. And I was like, okay, I hope you're right. And, but it was, so it was like, like, I just remember, you know, on, on Denver, Chris Walken on Denver was, what, what were you going to say to Chris Walken if he decided he wanted to change his line? It's your first movie. You're, you're scared shitless. It was so the opposite. He, if he missed a comma in my script, he'd be like, he'd be like, "Oh, whoa, 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 wait, wait, stuck, caught, caught." Like he cut himself, and he'd be like, "I, I, I left out a word. What word? You know?" And so I'm, you're sitting there behind the monitor. You go, "This is, this is the greatest thing <laughs> ever." And then eventually, you're going to run into, of course, actors who, who, you know, listen. I have never had a problem with an actor wanting to change my dialogue if he's going to improve it. Like Nick Nick Cage was great at coming up with shit that, that would that was just and so that's a pleasure. The the darkest thing is when you have an actor who's you know a fairly big actor who thinks he has the skill of improv or you know coming up with something out of his own and doesn't, and then you're in that position where it's you know and that's happened too. Um, but by and large, I've been I've been really really lucky. Where, where do you think the, the dialogue, I mean, where did that come from? You know, because some people don't know how to write dialogue. And, and was it something from you growing up that you keep an ear to it? Because, you know, in Beautiful Girls, we're like, we got apps, we got apps, you know. That line, everyone remembers that line, you know, because no one's using that term. But the dialogue, was it, were you a chat, were you chatty as a kid? Because, you know, I know me and my friends, we'd always bust each other's balls. It was just, you'd go out and it would just be, you'd get at the bar before you went out. You'd always give the other hard time. And you just naturally learned to not, we weren't writing dialogue, but we were, you know, using it. Is that how you decided? Is that how you picked up that gift, or do you not know how? I mean, I, I think. Listen, I think it's. I think you. I always say this: it's, you can't learn how to write dialogue. It's you know, the, the, it's you can learn how you can basically learn structure of, of a movie. You can you can certainly learn how to plot a thing. You can probably maybe learn how to develop character, but you can't. Yeah, learn dialogue. I mean, it, you can either do it or you can't. Um, so I think part of it, you're just, it's just a skill. But I also think that for me personally, it, a lot of it came from my father and, and just like the, there was a lot of male energy around my house and, and also the Jewish kind of vernacular, you know, like, you know, with my uncles and there was, there was just a lot of gab, you know, you're sort of surrounded by gab. And I've always sort of been drawn to, I mean, just look at those first three movies that we mentioned. I mean, they're just about about a big 
group of guys, you know, like the male ensemble is something that has just been kind of my, uh, my bread and butter. And, uh, and I think that it's just an extension. It's an extension of that. And, you know, always hung out with a big group of guys, you know, in high school and college, and then still hang out with my high school buddies now. Um, so I think that that's part of it, you know, and you, and you get, it's just, it's, it's, it's that thing. It's, and, and, you know, when it's done well, when, when, you know, with the, with the David Mamets and the, you know, Barry Levinson's, you know, people like that, like it's, it's, it's awesome. And when it's, and when it's done not well, it's, it's very easy to, for that to feel inauthentic, you know? Now, you said earlier, you know, in the beginning, you became the hot, the hot new kid in town. What is that like? Like, if you can sum that up in a, in a like, people don't know what that means. It's funny is they don't, I mean, it's, and I know what you're talking about, but because once something strikes, everybody comes out of the woodwork, you know, and I talk to musicians, it happens to them. It's like, we couldn't get a deal. And then, you know, especially guys with the 80s, Sunset Strip, then, you know, such and such got a deal. Guns Roses got a deal and everyone just came out wanted to sign everybody and wanted to sit there and everyone. What is it like when you when you're sitting there and you're in a feeding feeding frenzy? And back then in the eighties it was a time where there was bidding wars. I mean it's not they don't do that anymore, I don't think. But what I mean, did you incorporate any Yeah, wars? I mean they still do it now, but not as much. But this so this was more the nineties we're talking about. Um but yeah, it was a whole different time and it was you know, I always feel bad for all of us who weren't working in Hollywood in the <clears throat> late '60s, early '70s, which has to had to have been the, the greatest time when it was just that nexus of of Hollywood and rock and roll and fashion and everything was in politics and it was all just kind of happening. Um, but I will say that, like, I feel like we were the la- like sort of my era was the last. It, it was just a different time. There weren't, you know, there weren't, there was no internet. There were no cell phones. Everyone didn't know everybody else's business. And when you were 28 years old and you, you were like the hot screenwriter in town, it was, it was good. It was really good. It was really fun. It was because you all of a sudden you're, you're like, you're meeting people that you grew up watching, you know, you're, you you get a call that so-and-so wants to have a meeting with you or directors that you love. And it, it was just a, it was a, it was one of those things that just doesn't, I never, I mean, to this day, it's, it's still, it does. I will say, I, I mean, it's the one thing that I, that I'm proud of. I, I never get, I never, I never ever. And, and there's a lot, a lot of reasons to be cynical and there's a lot of disappointments in the business, but I never get, I never lose sight of how thrilling it is that I'm getting to do this with, you know, these people that I've, you know, that I, I just admire and I love and they're so talented, you know? Now, you had said earlier, you know, you had the, the typewriter, you didn't have a desk. Well, what's it like when all of a sudden you're making money? I mean, your life has to change. I mean, did you go get a new car? Did you get a new place? I mean, when you first started getting those paydays. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I did, I got a new car. I mean, I got a Bronco. I didn't, it wasn't like I got, you know, I didn't buy a Ferrari. I got a bigger apartment. I didn't have to sleep on a futon on the floor with a roommate. It was all that stuff. Um, and again, I grew up really poor. So it, to me, it was extra shocking. Uh, but it was, it was that, listen, the, and it's going to sound obnoxious to say this, but money, it, 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 it's 
certainly it, it was nice to have one less thing to worry about. Like when I put the ATM card in into the ATM, I didn't have to worry that I wasn't going to get it back because that happened at least 20 times in my life, you know. Um, and it was nice not to like, I, I, and I'm not trying to romanticize it, but like I used to eat lettuce sandwiches. Like that was a thing. Like I had two pieces of toast, a lot of mayonnaise and just lettuce. And that was like a thing. I, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, I, I was like something out of Dickens, but, but there, there, that was, that was a period of time where that was, that was my lunch. So it was nice to not have that. Uh, and, 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 and the, and the best was not, the best part about being paid as a writer was just to be able to, you know, the only because I would always have to have a job. So the only time I could write were nights and weekends. And so you didn't feel like you were a part of the rest of society because everybody else, you know, goes to work during the week and then they recreate on nights and weekends. But on nights and weekends, I, I needed to do this other thing. So you're, you're a little discombobulated, you know moving forward now beautiful girls as I, I do love that movie did you know you wrote about guys in your hometown did you get any flack from the people in, in your neighbor in your neighborhood did they go you know what's bullshit i'm not like that you know i mean and were any of those stories based like when no. uh who is it uh when, mean, I, when they go to fight at the guy's door and they see his kid and they go they leave i mean it, are these true stories or are they just something that you exaggerate a little bit the they were they were true to a certain extent. Nobody, nobody got offended by saying I'm not like that. They got offended by saying you literally took my life and put it on screen. You write a movie, you don't think everybody's going to make it. So I used some of the real characters. Some of my buddies, I used their real nicknames. And then when I realized we were going to make the movie, I tried to get the director to change it. And he was like, no, nah. I, I remember specifically because Birdman was a real guy and Mo and Ike, uh, no, Ike wasn't in that. Birdman and Mo, and I remember coming into the office. We were it was during casting, I think, and I had a list of like fifty alternate names for Birdman and Mo. Because now we're gonna make the movie, and like I don't want my buddies to. And there was some real shit that they did that was in the movie, and so I, the director was uh, the late great Ted Demi, and I was like, hey, I, you know, the more I think about it, I'm not really happy with these. He didn't know. Like, I'm not really happy with these names. I go, I came up with some alts. So I gave it to him and the producers, this guy, Carrie Woods, and I was like, these are my alts for Birdman, and these are my alts for Mo. And, they, and they're reading through it, and they're reading through it, and then, like, my heart is pounding. And and then they both looked up, like, at the same time, like, nah, these suck. We're keeping Birdman and Mo. So there was a little bit of, like, so the movie came out. I, I flew them there. Uh, I flew them to New York for the premiere. They got to meet their counterparts. And, you know, so they we sort of patched it over. Like, they, they were... It was, it was, uh, they, it all worked out in the end. Now you're sitting there, you know, you have a good, you're writing the movies. Um, and the last, then disturbing behavior, you got to work with Vince Vaughn and Busevi. I mean, it's like, what, what is that like when you get to work with those guys? Those guys, well, I worked with Buscemi. I'd worked with Buscemi a few times. He did. Coming, the, the, I, I forgot to mention Joel Silver. The, when he first like discovered us, the first thing he did was he gave us a Tales from the Crypt. Gary and I, Gary directed, I wrote it, and it was Dal, Roger Daltrey and Steve Buscemi were in, were the stars. So I knew Steve then, and then I did Con Air with Steve. Steve was in Denver. Steve was in Denver. Steve was in Con Air. I worked on Armageddon. Steve was in Armageddon. 
Um, so I've worked with him quite a bit. And Vince, I just knew socially. Um, but that wasn't uh, that wasn't disturbed behavior. Disturbed behavior is a different movie. That was domestic disturbance. Oh God! Okay, my bad. Right. Yeah. So, disturbed behavior was a uh, was a James Marsden, Katie Holmes picture that nobody saw. Now, what what was your target in genres? Because you you go you jump around like Con Air was action, Beautiful Girls was more light, you know, and all of a sudden you're developing. When you sat down, did you always want to write something different, or did you sit there? That was it. That was the only mandate. The only thing I said was I would like whatever I'm writing now to be completely different from the one I just finished. That was kind of like the – because I felt like I was relatively versatile in that, and I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the, you know, Con Air Gone in 60 Seconds guy. The same way I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the, you know – I mean, now it's – it's, you're not getting, I'm not getting pigeonholed. It's funny. I had, I had to laugh though, you know, cause I'm, I'm doing this thing. I don't know if you saw with, um, Leonardo DiCaprio, this Jim Jones, you know, to Jonestown. We're going to do this. It was just announced a couple of days ago and Leo playing Jim Jones. And it's, you know, about the whole, you know, the life of Jim Jones and the Jonestown and the whole thing. And then and when they announce it and they, <laughs> and all my credits and it's like Scott Rosenberg, Con Air, Venom, Jumanji, the other Jumanji. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly the guy who should be writing the Leonardo DiCaprio, Jim Jones movie. Like, it seems ridiculous, you know. Um, but that, but, but to your point, I mean, I think that's part of the, that's the idea. It's like, you know, you want to, especially now, 25 years into it, you, you really want to try and constantly be challenging yourself, you know. And, and trying to elevate, I don't know how much longer I have left, you know, doing this. No, I mean, I don't oh. mean literally on this podcast. I mean, how much longer I have left in my career. So you, you, you want to try and, you know, just do things that you hadn't done before. Now, explain to my listeners the difference between written by screenplay and screenplay by, because a lot of people don't know that. And, you know, if you're in the industry, you understand. But when you see the tag, like screenplay by, written by, explain the difference. I actually don't know the difference. I've never understood the difference. I ask that question all the time. I was going to ask you the to, to explain it. I don't know because I look at I, I'm always like, wait, I got that credit and I got that credit. I, I think is if is screenplay by if it's based on an original, no, is if written by is if it's not based on anything. Well, I think like a high fidelity, you have screenplay by that was based on a book. I'm sure you've also right. brought it. You've also been probably been brought. And my my understanding is, written by is when you you get it from the get go. You do the story. You do the screenplay. Yeah, that yeah, that makes sense. Right, right. And yeah. then story by, of course, it's just a story. Right. And screenplay yeah, yeah, seems yeah. like they bring you in as a. Yeah, I don't. A, I don't. So, I apologize. Well, now, well how does it happen? Ears. Like high fidelity. How did that happen? How did you get brought in on that? Because it was because you work with uh, Cusack or no, 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 no. Cusack came after me. That was that was a situation where. I was, I was given the book in galley form by Mike Newell was the director. He was, he directed Four Weddings and a Funeral and all those, he was a great, great English director and he was attached and I wrote a script with him and then he said, I'm not going to direct this movie, which I think he was never going to direct it. I think he he really to, to what we were speaking of earlier about wanting not to do the same thing over and over again. Four Weddings and a Funeral was like the most successful 
romantic comedy like ever. I think based on when you go from budget to how much it costs versus how much it made, or certainly at the time. And I think he just wanted not to do another one, which High Fidelity, you know, you could argue was similar. I mean, he went on to do Donnie Brasco instead. So obviously he had, and so I, I left, I, I stopped. I, cause I was like, I, I, I was doing something at Dimension and Wes Craven wanted to like be really hands-on and work with me. So I couldn't do both. So I left and then Cusack and those guys came in after me. So that was a situation that had nothing to do with Cusack or my relationship with Cusack. So they came after me and then they did their script and I got, I just got credit cause I was the first guy in and, and, and almost everything. So much of what is in that movie came from the book and I, I was there first, you know, so you get shared credit. Now, who was asking to work? Like you said, Wes Craven wanted to work with you. Who was who wanted to work with you back then? Who was sitting there? Where, I mean, when you and how would you make decisions of who you'd want to work to? I mean, because you're getting offers. I mean, would you just look and say this looks great, or did you have any say in the directors you'd work with, or how did that work? Well, no. I mean, these. You know, it's it's when I say want to work with, like it was. You know, you get a call and like Tony Scott's a big fan of things to do in Denver and he's got a project and you want to go meet him or Ron Howard has an idea and would like to meet with you. And it's like, uh, unfortunately, none of these, none of these things with the great directors ever kind of came in, came to fruition um, with sort of these iconic directors. But I worked with, so there was a Wes Craven, there was a John Carpenter time, there was a, um, there was a. Um, Jim Brooks was going to direct Beautiful Girls early on. Um, so, you know, I came, I did the dance with a lot of these kind of amazing directors. It's just nothing, nothing ever, uh, we never got the movies made for a variety of reasons. So you're, you're writing movies and eventually you transition to the TV. What made you decide to do that? Was that something that, you know, because it's, I just said, when you're writing on a movie, you're sitting there, you're doing the screenplay. Now, you were someone who actually went on set, you said a lot, so you're still involved. But TV, it's like such a, isn't it a lot longer days? Or I mean, what made you try to, dis, what made you decide to go into TV? Well, you just well I, I sort of fell, I fell into it, but I will tell you that it just seemed like the thing to do at the time. And there was a little bit of lull in the movie career and everything else. But I will tell you, it was as a screenwriter in the movies to all of a sudden be a writer in television, it's, it's night and day. You're just the, the, my first day. I remember I was, I met with like three casting directors. I liked one and I went to the executive and I said, Oh, I liked her. And the, and the executive was like, okay, she's hired. And that was so shocking to me. I was like, huh? Because I said, she's hired. She's hired. Yeah, of course. I mean, you are the, the writer is the boss. The writer is the king. It's not the director. And that was the, and there was something really, really obviously that part is great, but more importantly is the, in a movie, in the best case, best case, best case scenario, it's a year from page to stage, right? In television, you're writing a script and a week later you're shooting it. And that instant, instant kind of gratification can't be beat, you know? Um, but it's, it's, there's, it's simply the hardest job in all of entertainment is the hour long is hour long television for sure, especially back then in those days when it was in the 22 episode season and you know, all that stuff. Like 
there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing when you're, especially when you're the guy running the show, because if you think about it with a movie, a movie, you, 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 you write the script, you're in prep, you shoot it, you're in post, you're doing the music, you know, the, it's, it's, it's one, it's one continuum. So in television, you're, you're writing the script for one episode, you're casting for the second episode, you're shooting a third episode, you're in post on the fourth, it's all happening at the same time. And you're the, and you're the primary. You're the guy in charge of all of it. And I had two partners for much of it. And how how these guys do it without, you know, who do it alone? Some of these showrunners, it's just insane to me. It how is did, so hard. How did you find your partners? I mean, were they something that the network put together? Because I've talked to people where the network has put someone with someone. Or how did you guys get? I worked I, two of these. The Applebaum and Nemec. I worked with on this other show that I did early, early on in my career that nobody ever heard of for Showtime called going to California and they I didn't I was I was a gigantic feature writer at that point and I was just like yeah I'll do it, it was based on this book this novel unpublished novel that I'd written 20 episodes we shot it on the road and I was like I can write every episode and show it was showtime and before showtime was even anything and they were like no you can't and we're giving you a seasoned showrunner which they did um, and he he came, he had, he had these young writers that he'd worked with before and it was Josh and Andre. And then th- that was my entire staff. Um, and they were young and they were sort of coming out of the, they really hadn't done much of anything. And they, and then they just became, you know, they became my guys. And now we've, we've grown. We added this other guy, Jeff Pinkner, who came from, they, then they went on to work on alias and they met this guy, Jeff Pinkner. And we now it's the four of us, and we we've, we've done really well as far as we we have a show called Citadel for Amazon. That's this big show that's coming out soon. This thing, Cowboy Bebop, is premiering next week on Netflix, and we're doing the show called From for Epics. And we did High Fidelity, and that unfortunately just got canceled. We had the TV version, um, so it's it's been really good. But but it started because we just all really liked working with each other. They all have feature careers, um, but it was just something that you know all four of us could do together. Now, is there is there any battle of let's say ego when you're in a room when you think something's right and they think something's right? And if there is, how do you dissolve that? How do you make sure it all works out? Do you take it to vote or what? Well, the the, the way the company works now, and it's, it was different back in the you know when it was just Josh, Andre, and myself. But because there's four of us, we each guy has. Each guy is first chair on a show, so that's it's only two guys per show because it was too many voices. It was unwieldy. So, and then when the show goes into production, you go from two chairs to like there's one guy and it's his, and it's it's basically his show. So the executives know who to call and everything. So it's, but we never we never had problems with you know we just we were friends before we were colleagues and there's minor skirmishes but there's no it's never about ego. Uh, it's always about the best idea ruling the day. Now, when you would develop the shows and when you wrote the shows and you created the shows, do you have a big game plan past season one? Do you have like a, a spec where you go, well, if it goes five seasons, we want to know where it's going? Or do you guys sit there and take it in? And you go, okay, we're going to get the first season done. And as you're going through and writing and, and watching the final product, deciding which which way you're going to go. You have to have a general idea. 
but in a perfect world where I mean, the, the network's going to want to hear it, right? They, they want to hear, you know, it's funny now, it's different with the streamers who they don't really want you to go past three seasons, but it certainly wasn't that way back in the day where it's like, you know, they want to go as long as possible. But I think generally you, you need to know, even at the pitch stage, you don't need to know, be super granular about it, but you need to know generally in a broad sense where it's going to go beyond. You have to know exactly what happens in season one. You have to know generally but with a little more specificity season two and then and then i think in a macro sense you need to know about season three and beyond but you don't need to know every single you know every single beat for sure now what's it like when a show gets canceled i mean you know you've you've had a good career you know things happen is it devastating when it happens are you pissed i mean because i always talk to actors who are waiting you know for the call and you know it's something that they don't know and it's not an actor just can't just jump and get another show. I mean, for a writer, you can transition because it's what you guys do. But what's it like when you find out your show is not getting picked up? It really sucks. It really, really sucks. Um, and it's especially because, like I said, it's so hard to make those shows. And you bond so much with your cast and with your crew that when all of a sudden they say, okay, you're not going to get to do it anymore. And all of a sudden you fall in love with the, with the, with the world that you created and, and you love, like I, you know, it, it's devastating. I mean, I, you know, the first three shows that we did, none of them, one lasted two seasons and the other two lasted a season each. And they're like, they're blips in the history of television. But if you had, this, the first one was um, this thing called October road that we did for ABC. That was kind of based on beautiful girls. And if you told me that I could have written that show with that cast and with Josh and Andre for the next 10 years of my life, I don't care if anybody was watching it, stick, it on, stick us on Friday nights at 10 o'clock. I don't care, but that's my job. I would have been just delighted. You know, I, I like loved writing it. And then, we, then after that, it was a thing called Life on Mars that we did also for ABC. It was the same thing. October got canceled, and I was like, fuck Life on Mars. I don't want to do Life on Mars. And then you just fall in love with Life on Mars, and you just fall in love with that. Like, I think, honestly, I don't know. I've never had the luxury of, you know, having one of those shows that go, like, six years and, like, the burnout. And, like, I'm sure, I'm sure that happens. But I don't know. I mean, are those Grey's Anatomy people, are they sick and tired of making money aside? Are they – who knows? I mean, I think you, you always have to find – ways to sort of be re-energized by the work, I'm sure, but it's never happened to me, and I dare say it never will happen to me. I can't imagine them. There's, there's, there's no world where I have a show that runs for seven years in my future. I don't think I'll be alive for another seven years. So Now, when you, you know, when you said, you know, the show gets canceled, you don't want to do Life on Mars, and then, you know, it gets only lasts this long. How do you, how do you mentally get yourself back? Because do you go into that next show thinking, okay, it's, it's, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. And then all of a sudden it ends and you go, what the fuck was I thinking? I mean, how no, you- it's just, again, I, maybe it's, maybe it was, it's, it's uh, being a Red Sox fan, you know, that, that it was every, every spring. It's like, this is going to be our year. And I think that's the kind of thing that you muster up for everything, you know, between movies and television. It's kind of the most exciting part of the, one of the most exciting parts of the, 
of the work is, all right, that one didn't work. We get to try again. Maybe this one will. And you just never know, right? And you put your same energy and your same love and your same passion into it. You have to. Um, and you just never know. But I, I don't know. I mean, we're literally, you know, we're a week away from this show, Cowboy Bebop. It was my partner show, not my show, but still. I, 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 was, I helped out in the beginning, in the, in, you know, when it's sort of in its embryonic form. And we're like, wow, could this be our first? We haven't had a hit TV show. Could we, could this be our first, you know, by the time this um, podcast airs, people can listen to it and go, well, he, he, another one for the lost column (laughs) (laughs) or maybe not. Like, I don't know. But so, so, you know, it's, but it's one of those things that I've had so much success in my career, but never had a hit TV show. Like you know, to see what that feels like. You know, it's funny. You said something about the Red Sox, and then you know you, you're still excited. It's like for me, I'm a big Eagles fan, and we finally won a Super Bowl after years of losing. And now, and I used to hate it because when I lived in LA, I'd walk home from the bar in Burbank, and everyone would go, "Oh, Philadelphia sucks!" All the Cowboy fans. You know how LA is with the. And now, for me, before I was like, "Man, the Eagles this another year." But after they won, then you're like, when it when they lose because they suck this year, it doesn't, it doesn't bother you as much like it used to bother you but now you're like yeah we finally have it under the belt for you you've had so many you know successful projects i mean even when the one gets you know doesn't if this bebop doesn't run will you be bummed out or will you just say you know what i still have a lot of work to do it well it's different because bebop it's just it's kind of apples and oranges bebop i didn't it wasn't my show. I didn't. It's good for my company. It's good for my partner. It's good for everything. But I don't have my blood, sweat, and tears in the show. So I wouldn't. Am I going to be gutted when it? You know, I'll be disappointed. But it's certainly not going to be the same when you know those earlier ones. I you know, or when a movie bombs. You know, a movie. It's one thing if a movie bombs and it's a movie that you got rewritten on, or it's a movie that you you know. But if it's a movie that you took from start to finish and it doesn't do well yeah it's a bummer but again it's the best part about the job is like you you get another crack at the bat you know i mean until you put enough failures together then they take the bat away um but you know at a certain point uh i don't think nobody 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 likes to lose you know now i get a question how did you pitch zoo Zoo, uh, Zoo was well. Zoo was a book. Zoo was the Zoo was the company that Zoo was the project that we started our new company. So I was working with Josh and Andre, and we brought along Pinkner, and we were like, "This is the biggest, dumbest, greatest." And we it was so easy. It's, we, it was the easiest pitch ever. First of all, it was a James Patterson novel. James Patterson's like the most successful novelist of you know all time and it was we pitched it as walking dead but with animals and it was exactly when walking dead was the biggest show in television and we were like the animals decide they don't like us anymore so it's 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 walking dead but with tigers and lions and bears and I'm like okay and it was a cbs like summer thing uh and it ran three seasons um i always forget about that um i forgot i forgot about that one but that was that was one of the ones like i was super involved in season one and then and then not at all two and three when my partner Josh took over that one. 
Now you were you were in TV and then you come back to movies. Jumanji. How does that come about? I mean, or was it, were you putting out there? I want to come back to the movies, or I mean, had you put screenplays on the side pretty much because TV took so much of your time? I always, I'd always, I was always, I always had a toe in the water. Like I, I, I always had movies that I was working on, but not. But it was like one or two. It wasn't like a real. But then when the first, when those, I had that run at ABC with those three shows and I was essentially out of it for like four years. And then I came back and the, I wrote a spec. It didn't really, the movie business had really changed. I was like off of everybody's lists. I wrote a spec. It eventually sold, but not really, not for what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be the biggest movie ever. And there were little, you know, I had little jobs, but there was nothing going great. And then I found a book that I was obsessed with called Grasshopper Jungle. And it's a YA book, like a post-apocalyptic YA book. And I was obsessed with it. And I got a studio to buy it for me And I, with this producer, Matt Tolmack. And I wrote it. And it came out really great. Hopefully, we'll still get it made at some point. But Matt was doing Jumanji. And Grasshopper Jungle was like a, a high school. It was a high school component. And there was a script for Jumanji written by these great writers. Um, and it was that, that the guys who write these Spider-Man movies now. Um, and it was a script, but the script had, it had issues. And so they brought, so I had written this Grasshopper Jungle and it had this whole high school component and the kids in Jumanji were high school and Tomac said, hey, you want to, will you rewrite this script? And it was with one of my TV partners, Jeff Pinkner, who was helping him, who had written Spider-Man for him. So it was just this weird confluence of events that got us that got us on that movie. Now, did you think when that movie came out there would be a second one? I will tell you, when we went to the table read in Hawaii of the first movie, and watching those actors say those words aloud for the first time, and, and, and when I realized how, just how strong this concept was and again it wasn't I didn't invent the concept it was it was this Chris McKay these other these other guys I was like this movie's gonna be huge I, this movie is gonna be huge because because I realized it wasn't it wasn't so much the Robin Williams Jumanji movie we were remaking it was the breakfast club it was the breakfast club like but on acid and steroids and crack right because that's what it was it was those those high school archetypes who all of a sudden get to inhabit you know the nerd becomes Dwayne Johnson and the the hot girl becomes Jack Black and and I was just like and it was so funny hearing them say those words and you know what it was it was watching the actors themselves it was watching the actors themselves we're all sitting around a big table in a hotel room in Oahu or a meeting uh, uh, whatever it was and it was it was watching them realize just what kind of gold this was I didn't think it was going to be as successful as it was. I mean, the movie made almost a billion dollars, but I just knew it was, it, we all sort of felt it together because it was, it was just something very, very special before you even get into the, the effects and the, you know, the, all, all the, all the great stuff. And the director, Jake Kasdan did such an amazing job, but just that jumping off point of these four kids who are now, you know, are in the bodies of the, of the, of these, completely different you know it was i was like yeah we're, we're on to something and it was fairly certain that you know there was going to be a second one and hopefully there'll be a third because you know it's a trilogy 
what's it what's it like writing a second one is it like is it do you worry about like when musicians come out with this great album and they're worried about the second album that it has to do well i mean it's something that you know people love the movie so you're going to get a good crowd i mean it's going to make money i mean that's the way it is and it's that's any you know how it is in the media and if you sit there if you read a book by an author you'll read it and you'll go this is great and you read a second one you're like ah, it's not that good but we'll give them a chance in the third one it's one of those things you do it but i mean as the writer for the for the second one what was it like where you did you feel it was really it was really scary it was also scary because we, we needed to do it in a very in a very compressed timeline like the 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 conventional wisdom was like you want between the first and the second movie, it's good not to let more than two years elapse. You have way more luxury between the second and beyond, but, but between first and second. Um, so we, it was, it was a little bit of a rush thing and it's always the, the push pull between you want to give the people what they want, but you don't want to play the same song again because then it just feels like a money grab. Um, which obviously there are elements to that, but so it was, it was really, it was very intimidating. It was very tricky, but I have always contended that you could take those four actors slash characters and you can basically put them anywhere and people are just going to be, there's just, it's, there's something sort of magical about that ensemble, you know? Um, but I do, I would say, so the second one kind of, I mean, if there was a knock on the second one, it was how similar it was to the first one. We rum, jumbled it up a little bit because you had, you know, Danny DeVito and The Rocks playing Danny DeVito and like the, the old man and the whole thing, Danny Glover. But I think if we did a third one, we we would not be able to go back to the well that well. I think you'd have to subvert a lot of expectations. And it would be five years, you know, it wouldn't come out until five years after the first one. But I, I just don't think you, you can't, you can't do the same thing a third time for this kind of movie. You know, you can if it's James Bond, you can if it's Raiders, you know, where it's just, it's, but I don't think you can. I mean, how many more times can you go back to the game? You know? Now, in between that, you did Venom. Now, how did that come about? Because that's, once again, it's you going completely, I mean, you're writing the high school that stuff. Came, and that then, came out after after Jumanji, and we were, all of a sudden, we were, because, I, again, I did this with this guy, Jeff Pinker, and we were, you know, we were the golden boys of at Sony Pictures. And they, uh, they were like, there's this movie, we've been trying to get it going forever. Um, would you be interested? And I, it's funny, because I grew up on Spider-Man, like I... Spider-Man in the seventies, I had a subscription to the comic book and, but I completely lost. Although I worked on the, I worked on the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man. I did. I was the second writer on that and they fired me very quickly. But, but I, um, but I completely lost touch with Spider-Man, certainly in the comic book world. So I didn't even know who Venom was. Um, and it kind of served us because, the idea was, it was it was the very first thought when I when I realized who Venom was. I was like, oh, the only way you have to you have, you have to tell the story is it's all of me, right? He has to be because the way Venom is is Venom's like Hulk. He's he's Eddie Brock, and then he turns into Venom, and then he's. But the idea that they could actually communicate with each other. So when he's Venom, Eddie's inside him, and vice versa, and they, so it's literally Lily Tomlin and Steve Martin. I was like, that's how you do this movie, and they were like, oh my god. That's genius. And I was like, are you serious? Nobody ever thought of this? You've been trying to develop this for seven years and nobody ever thought of this? 
And, uh, and so we wrote that draft. We did like 30 drafts with the director and then Tom Hardy was on. And then Tom has this girl, this great screenwriter that he works with all the time called Kelly Marcel. And he, he was like, it was time we'd done 30 drafts and it was like time for us to leave. And the, the new Jumanji, the second Jumanji was coming up. And so Kelly took over. So that movie was kind of different from what we had, we had when we left, it definitely changed a bit. And then Kelly's the one who wrote the, the, uh, the one that just came out. We were not asked back. Now, now you mentioned the Citadel earlier. Now, how'd you yes. get back into TV then? Because it's like you were, you were only. I, so I, we started this company. Th- th- these things were running concurrently. We started this company at Zoo on Zoo, which was about five years ago, and we've been doing a bunch of stuff. We did a show called Everything Sucks for Netflix, the High Fidelity thing at Hulu, a show called Lime Town at where was that? That was a company that's no longer doing it anymore. I can't remember what. Um. But, oh, Facebook, um, that company, no longer doing original content. But, um, but we were, but we were, so we're all doing our stuff and writing our movies and stuff, and but also de- constantly developing. And Citadel just came out, came out of the, we had to deal with the Russo brothers, the guys who directed all the Avenger movies, and, or the two Avenger movies and the Captain America movies. And we had to deal with them, and they had some, they had some idea to do this thing with Amazon like a big giant mission impossible kind of, but character forward show. And we sort of got into it vis-a-vis that. And again, that's not my, we, I, I co-wrote the pilot, but that has not been my show. It's my partner, Josh Applebaum, who moved his family to London like two years ago to make the show. They got shut down during the pandemic, but it's a big, massive, it's Richard Madden's in it um, from Game of Thrones and Bodyguard, Priyanka Chopra, Stanley Tucci. It's a, it's a big, big show. Now you live in Massachusetts now. What, yes. When did you, when did you move back from LA, or had you always been bi-coastal? I'd always been bi-coastal. I'd always been sort of New York, LA. But I have, I'm like, an, I'm an old dad. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and I, um, I don't like LA particularly. I've always wanted to never, but but the kids were. I had the kids out there. They were going to school out there. And then, really, it was the pandemic. I mean, I have a place. I have a place in Martha's Vineyard, and we were here not last summer, but the COVID summer. You know, we were we were here like the real COVID summer, the, the lockdown summer, and we were here for the summer. And then we realized that if we go back to LA, the kids are not gonna. They're gonna be zooming from home, and there's this wonderful little Montessori schoolhouse here on the island. And I was like, wait, if we can get them in here, maybe they can. And it, it was amazing because they did not miss one day of school. They went to school in person the whole time. And and here it's great. I mean, it's I mean, as a writer to just be living on an island right now, it is so rainy and windy right now and disgusting. And it's the greatest writing weather in the world. Whereas in L.A., it's like you know, eighty degrees and sunny, and you're like, I'm like, what am I doing inside? Um, so it was it was. It was nice. I mean, last winter it was easier because the whole world was on a timeout, so you didn't feel like you were missing anything. But, you know, we don't have theater here. We don't have uh, concerts here. We don't have uh, sporting events. But, you're, but you know, I'm, I'm a, an hour drive to Boston once I get off the ferry. It's a 20-minute flight to New York, so it's not terrible. I don't, know how, I don't know if we'll stay here forever, but 
for now, it's it's working out. Well, now one final question: in your career, what was the most when you just went, "Holy crap!" When someone was saying a piece of your dialogue, when what what was there any one actor that you just went? Because you had so many great actors in all your yeah, films. there's there's been a lot, but I will say the the it's funny because I'm just reading this book about the the making of Midnight Cowboy right now, and I I, I always forget the so my so Fleeter Gary Fleeter who did things to do in Denver was directing this movie called Runaway Jury based on the John Grisham novel, and Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman are both in the movie, and there was no scene between. Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman in the in the script because they played these two characters who never had a scene together. And Gary was like, "We have we have to have a scene between the two of them." And uh, he had a, a a lot of different writers take a crack at the scene. And I was really busy, and finally he called me and he said, "Can you take a crack at the scene?" So I wrote the scene. I said it. it was only like a four or five page scene, and he was like, "It's awesome. This is what we're gonna do." He's like, I'd love you to come to New Orleans and be here and rehearse and the whole thing. And it was truly one of the great. So there was a private plane that Dustin and I got on in, in Van Nuys. And we flew to Santa Fe. And we picked up Gene Hackman. It was just the three of us on this plane. We flew to New Orleans. It's literally the Scott Rosenberg show where I was just like, so let's talk about Rain Man. Or, let's talk about French Connection. Like with that. And we went to New Orleans. They were, we rehearsed. We shot the scene. And, and that night, they were both wrapped. It was the end of the show. And that night, like, I went out with just me and the two of them. We went to a, a, a basketball game. The Lakers were in town. And we went to the basketball game. We got super drunk. We wound up at, like, that chef, whatever his name is, on Bourbon Street, um, the Paul Prudhomme restaurant. Me, Hackman, and Hoffman. It was like, I was like, this is, this is, yeah, this is pretty much, this is pretty much as good as it gets, you know. for the get Just for the kid who, you know, grew up, I mean, it's in large part. Poseidon Adventure was the movie that made me want to get into movies, you know. And and you know, I just think about The Graduate, Marathon Man, and Midnight Cowboy, and French Connection, and so that was that was wild. That was one of my, you know, you get you get we we take lots of pictures with famous people. We have we obnoxiously hang them on the wall of our office, but the one of me and Gene and Dustin is uh, that's a that's a keeper. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I want to thank you for coming on the show. People, go on to IMDb, look up Scott Rosenberg, watch all his stuff. Just go watch it. Buy it. Whatever you want to do, just watch it. He's had such a big chunk of, uh, of Hollywood, you know, in the last 25 years. You have, uh, what else is coming up for you? Do you have anything besides the Jim Jones, besides that? Um, yeah, so I'm, so Cowboy Bebop comes on next week. We have this thing, Sit It All. We have this show called From. As far as on the movie side, I'm writing this thing called One Punch Man. Also with Pinkner, which is a, it's a, based on a, an anime, another anime. We're writing that for Sony. Um, the, what else do I have right now? The Jim Jones thing. I have a movie called Dashing Through the Snow at Disney. It's a Christmas movie because nobody writes a Christmas movie better than a Jew. <laughs> um, and what else? Yeah, I, and then there's something else that we're working on now that we can't talk about, but it's part of the the Spidey Spider-Man adjacent universe. They won't announce it. They haven't announced it. But the way that Venom and Morbius and Craven, you know, they're, they're doing all these. Sony's doing all these sort of Spidey Spider-Man adjacent. Um, but for some reason, 
you are literally not allowed to. I, I keep saying, why don't they announce that? It's been, you know, we've been working on it for quite a while, but they, I don't know. Um, so there's a lot going on. It's, a, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a busy time, which is good. Well, that's awesome, people. So go check out Scott Rosenberg. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 880 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.